as we get into these verses in Philippians, you're going to see why we're doing what we're doing this, this day. You start to read in verse 27 of chapter 1. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I'll know that you're standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. So, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We're in this struggle together. You've seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I'm still in the middle of it. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Think of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Now, I know that some of you will say, oh, he missed out the chapter heading. I need to tell you there are three parts of your Bibles that are not necessarily inspired of God at all, that are not infallible and are not there to be trusted. You may say, you can't say that about Scripture, I know I can't, but I can say it about your Bibles. Because your Bibles have got three things in them that aren't Scripture. One is the maps at the back. One is the index. And the other are the chapter headings. You may say, well, where do the chapter headings come from? Well, the chapter headings were put in on a French stagecoach 500 years ago. And the road that was being travelled by the guy who put in the chapter headings was extremely bumpy. <laughs> that is the only charitable explanation I can find to give for the appalling misplacing of so many of the chapter headings, which is why I breezed right across the start of chapter 2, because that chapter heading was not in the original, nor were any of them. And so if you ever get confused about Scripture, try missing out the chapter heading and see if it helps. There are certain places that are obvious. Nobody can make sense of John 14 unless they miss out the chapter heading because it ruins the end of John 13 and the, middle, and the beginning of chapter 14. Chapter headings were not in the original. By the way, nor were the verses either. Um, they are there for your ease of reference, but they're not inspired of God or infallible. <coughs> All right? Don't say you're getting taught liberal theology. My dear friend Steve Mattis will nod his head in total agreement. They weren't there in the original, and we can show you that. And that's ever so important in Philippians. 
What we're reading in Philippians is really about four things. And the first of those four things is this section of Philippians is really firstly about being different. You may say that word doesn't occur in Philippians. Fine. That's because scripture was written in Greek, not English. And when scripture tells you to be holy, most of us get ever so confused. You think, well, how do I get holy? Do I develop a halo? Do I have a beatific smile on my face? Is there something glorious about me that comes into play? The Greek word for holy is hagios. Uh, if you read the story of a saint, it's a hagiography. But hagios is the Greek word for holy. Hagios doesn't really mean holy in English. Hagios means different. So when scripture says be holy, it is just saying be different. Be different in a special way. Be different in a way that reflects Jesus. You know that lovely phrase in Acts, people took note that they'd been with Jesus. There was something different about them, something holy. There was hagios. They were different. We may not like the idea, but we are called first and foremost to be different. And so above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. You must be different. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? First of all, it means that you are different. This is a cause of great difficulty for most Christians. Because the one thing we don't want to be is too different from the world. Because if you get too different from the world, you'll get persecuted. But you are called by Jesus to be different. You are not called to baptize your culture. You are not called to be the same as everybody else and then find cunning scriptural reasons or quasi-biblical reasons to justify your being what you are. You are called to be different from what the world is. So Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who despitefully use you. Jesus says all kinds of things. I was in Iran, which is not the world's most comfortable country to be in. And I was in Tehran, and I was on a journey uh, to try to bring help from the churches in the States to the Iranians in the aftermath uh, of a major earthquake. I was president of World Relief, so that was my job. And um, I had asked for the churches to meet me. Now, some of you have heard me say before, Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. So meeting the Iranian churches is always a bit of fun anyway. But I had wanted to meet the Iranian churches when I got into Tehran. 
Unfortunately, and this is a horrible moment if it ever happens to you, you have arranged to meet people and nobody was at the airport to meet me. Now, of all the airports in the world for someone not to turn up for you, Iran is about the worst. Because you don't know what's going on. And, of course, your difficulty is when you fly in in the Middle East, about 90% of the flights come in the early hours of the morning. So I was arriving in Tehran Airport at about 2 o'clock in the morning, which, again, is not the best time to arrive at Tehran Airport because everybody who gets there immediately leaves as fast as they can. They're getting out of that airport. And so bit by bit, I saw the airport population disappearing around me, and I, and I alone was left. And I realized that that was going to make me a little bit obvious to the very people I didn't wish to be obvious to, which is, of course, the secret police uh, in Tehran. So I didn't quite know what to do. I tried to look inconspicuous. I have never been very good at looking inconspicuous. I tried to look as if I wasn't there. And I don't think I was doing a very good job of it. Because after about 20 minutes of hanging around and trying to pretend I wasn't there, one of the secret police came up to me and said, I think we'd better have a word. And so I got taken down uh, to the station, to their office. And when they got me there, they said, well, what are you doing here? And why has nobody met you? And I said, well, I'm not sure why nobody's met me. And uh, where are you going? Well, I don't know. <laughs> and what are you going to do? Well, I'm not sure about that either. <laughs> and why should we believe you? Well, because I'm an honest person. I'm a nice guy, trust me. <laughs> and so the, their response to me was, you can make one telephone call. So who would you call if you could make one call? I knew exactly who to call, and she's sitting over there. Because um, I knew that Ruth would find help somehow. So it was that lovely call that says, I've been picked up by the secret police, and I don't quite know what they're going to do with me next. Uh, you've got about 30 minutes to get help to me, or I'm going to be in deep, deep doo-doo. <laughs> Thank you very much. So Ruth, Ruth gets on with sorting out my dilemma. And after about 25 minutes, this guy comes in and walks up to me. Now, the head of the Iranian churches in those times, and I'm not going to give you his name, all right? So we'll call him Hamid for the moment. Uh, Hamid comes in. Now, I'd never been in Iran before. And I'd never met him. So I didn't have a clue who this guy was. I knew that the head uh, of the church there was uh, the bishop, and I knew that his right arm was an ex-banker who was famous in the economics of Iran. 
And so when Hamid came up to, to me, uh, I, it was with a deep sigh of relief. He said, your wife said that you needed a visitor. <laughs> and then he looked at the secret police, and this is what he said. Don't worry, this one's mine. Well, there is something incredibly comforting in that. <laughs> to know that the number two in the Iranian church thinks you're his. <laughs> and so the secret police did exactly what you wouldn't expect them to do. They said, okay, well, you'll better take him somewhere because he's getting in our way. So <laughs> off I went and disappeared uh, into the... Well, the sunset was long gone. Uh, I woke up in the morning to go do earthquake relief, which is what I was there for. And um, I think the secret police were quite happy. Uh, they'd got rid of me. Hamid was delighted, because that was the beginning of a love affair. Uh, not with him, but with the Iranian church. Uh, and the only contact I'd had before then was I did the memorial service in London for the martyred bishop. Bishop Hike. It's a bit sobering to realize that you're in the hands of the secret police when your only contact with the church before was the last martyred bishop that they had. But anyway, we put those thoughts out of our mind. And dear old Hamid's words were unforgettable. This one's mine. That's exactly the feel that you get in Philippians. It's all about being citizens together of heaven. You don't have to know each other. You don't have to be the same nationality. You certainly don't have to live in the same town. You don't have to be the same age or the same kind of person or the same gender or the same color. You've just got to be citizens of the same place. And although we're citizens of America, although we're citizens of Wilmington, although we have many other things in common, I want to tell you the best thing of all. We are citizens of heaven. Because that's where we're going to spend eternity. And Paul makes the point, and he makes it really strongly. Because you're citizens of heaven, you've got to live in a particular way. The second thing that comes over in these verses is if you're citizens of heaven, it's not about what you get from each other, or from the structure, or from the system. It's about what you give. Very few people seem to, my mind, to say why Paul is so besotted with the Philippians. Because he is. It's his favorite church. I'm besotted with the Iranians because I've never seen Christians living like that. Paul's besotted with the Philippians because no other church gave like they did. And he looked at the giving patterns. He looked at the way they thought about other people. And he was absolutely caught up with it. This was wonderful for the great apostle. For him, they'd really got it right. 
Citizenship was a real issue for the Philippians anyway, because it's the first church in Europe. More than that, it's a church in, in the heart of Roman territory. It's a church that isn't on natural ground. Why didn't Philippi have a synagogue? Because they didn't have 12 male Jews. They've got a few women who gathered together to pray, and that was it. And so the wonderful thing about this place is it lacks so many of the structures and so many of the normal patterns. But there is something about the Philippians. Three times they gave and gave generously. And the money came to Paul to give it to the Jews. Give it to Jewish believers. Because the church in Jerusalem was in the poorest part of the city. And they didn't have the resources. So they got them from Philippi. Which was full of Romans. And it's just a lovely, lovely picture of what the body of Christ is really about. It's full of people who are different. It's full of people who are giving and can't give enough. And the third thing is it's about people who are humble. Now, we've got a funny idea of humility. How many of you have ever read Charles Dickens? Dickens was a 19th century British author. Famous for books like David Copperfield, Oliver Twist. And one of the characters that Dickens was famous for was his picture of a man named Uriah Heep. Uriah Heep groveled and gave new meaning to the word grovel because Heap groveled as no one before or since really could grovel. When it came to groveling, he was the arch groveler. As he, he says in Dickens' words, Uriah Heap is talking to David Copperfield, and Heap says, very humble, Mr. Copperfield, very humble, an humble man, now, that's not humility. Humility is not what you claim for yourself. Humility is what you demonstrate in your life. And the wonderful thing, the absolutely stellar thing about real humility is it doesn't draw attention to yourself. It just gets on with the task that you have by not getting in the way. There are one or two of you, when I look at you, I think of the natural humility that you display. Frankly, you shouldn't be humble because of the jobs that you do. You should be proud of the position you have, and yet you're not. You're humble for Christ's sake. And I think that's a wonderful reflection of what we should be, that the citizens of heaven are going to be different to everybody else. The citizens of heaven are going to be giving more than everybody else.
The citizens of heaven are going to be more humble than you would expect people to be. And the fourth thing about the citizens of heaven is they're going to be united. I had a friend in Britain who was my board chairman. Uh, and his name was Mark Birchall. Now, Marco went to the right kind of school. You've got to remember that Britain's all about class. And Mark went to Eton, and I didn't. And Mark went to Oxford University, and I went to London. And Mark had got all, ticked all the boxes of class and prestige. He mixed freely with the aristocracy. He knew members of the royal family. He was the chairman of the evangelical group in General Synod of the Church of England. He'd got all the right positions. Marco was just a friend. Because when it came to being humble, he just knew how to do it. But he got hold of a, a word in Philippians, and it became the key word of his life. And I'd love to ask you what the word means, but I don't know how many of you have done any Greek. But the Greek word is koinonia. Pardon? Koinonia, fellowship. But if you're going to push what kind of fellowship, it's fascinating. Because Paul expresses some things you should do if you're in a real koinonia relationship with other people. He says you should hold your tongue. He says you should esteem one another higher than yourself. He says you should learn to listen to the people you're in that kind of fellowship with. He says you should refuse to inflate the importance of your time and the time you're giving. He says you should bear each other's burdens, put each other's interests first. He says you should share God's word. He says you should concentrate on service, not position. He says you should always forgive. He says you should take the responsibility for others on yourself. And he says that the responses you have to others should be very deeply felt. Now, this is where we get into Greek as well, I'm sorry. Because when Scripture talks about how you feel. It doesn't mean how you think. It means how you feel. Because how you think is in your brain, but how you feel is deep down within. And it would be perfectly respectable to talk about a gut level love. Because that's what Paul's talking about. And therefore he employs the Greek word Splankner. Now, your splankner are your kidneys, your liver, and your intestines. 
that's where the feelings come from. Deep in your guts. They're not superficial. They're very, very deep down. The Apostle John. If you ever read the first epistle of John, you'll find that he just keeps on talking about how much we should love each other. And there is a story told about the Apostle John. I can't guarantee it because it's not in the Bible. So am I allowed to give you extra biblical information, providing I promise you don't have to believe it? I think you should because I think it's good history and perfectly consistent. But you don't have to because it's not in the Bible. The story is told of John being in Ephesus and leading the church when he was very old. And he got so old that he couldn't walk anymore. He has my sympathies. But he couldn't walk at all. So what they did was they got a stretcher. And the young men in the church had to take both ends of the stretcher, put John on the stretcher, and they used to carry him down to go shopping. This is Christian love in action. So you got one guy at the one end of the stretcher and one guy at the other. And they used to carry John through the marketplace. And he would see Christians in a little group. And he would ask to be taken up to, over to them. And he would say, little children, love one another. Then he'd see some more Christians and ask to be taken to them. And he'd say, little children, love one another. Then there'd be another group of Christians and he'd ask to be taken to them. Little children, Love one another. Well, you can imagine what happens. Some of the Christians start looking at each other and go, dear old boy, what a great saint of God he was. What a wonderful, wonderful man. And he walked so closely with the Lord. But now, age has caught up with him a bit. He's just on a single track. All these little children love one another. And John wasn't as daft as he looked. And so he picked up on it and he turned to them and said, no, no, no. I go on saying little children love one another because the master commanded it and because it is the first foundation on which all else is built. And you'll read it time and again in his first epistle. And the great thing about little children love one another is it became the hallmark of John's teaching. Remember, it's John who records these words of my Jesus. Listen very carefully. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you have right doctrine one to another. I'm sorry, I was teasing. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you go to the right church together. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you do the right things together. Now, all of those might be highly commendable, but they're not in the Bible. John wrote this, By this will all men know that you're my disciples, 
that you love one another. And so the question as we face these verses in Philippians is are we different and distinguished by how much we love each other? Are we giving in such a way that can only be explained by the amount of love we have for each other? Are we humble and put ourselves down simply because we love each other more than we love ourselves? And are we united in koinonia, fellowship together, because we love each other? Because we're not citizens of earth. We are citizens of heaven.